as we look at the uh, the parable, the parables for today, maybe you're still a little fuzzy on what a uh, what a parable is. Um, you know, it's a it's a story. What are these parables that Jesus told? Why did he tell them? Um, I did run across. I do have a um, I have a parable joke, and um, I haven't shared it yet during this series. So I thought maybe today would be a good time. Why didn't Noah have any cream for his coffee on the ark? Because all he had was a pair of bulls. Thank you. I'll be here all day. Um, so maybe, obviously, that doesn't help understanding what parables are. But there are a couple of verses in Matthew chapter 13, uh, where we're going today, right in between the passages that we're going to read, that help explain a little bit about Jesus' use of parables. Matthew 13, verses 34 and 35, it says this, Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Jesus told stories, these parables, in order to reveal spiritual truths. And some of this stuff was, was and is countercultural. We don't necessarily come across it naturally. It's kind of, uh, counter to what we would, we would think the way things need to work. And so in that sense, it's hidden, as this passage says. And, uh, and so Jesus is revealing these truths to us through stories. Today, we're going to look at several, I guess I'm calling them snapshot parables. Uh, Matthew 13 stacks a lot of these parables all together. There's a, there's a couple longer ones about agriculture and crops, and, and there's one about catching fish. But sprinkled in between those are four kind of rapid-fire parables uh, that Jesus tells. And they all start with, with like, like many of the parables start with, they start with these words, The kingdom of heaven is like... And then these short snapshots, uh, uh, he, he tells what, what the kingdom of heaven is like. Uh, they're not big, long stories with, with characters and plot twists and different things like we've seen in, in, in some of them in the, in the past. Um, I think it's next week we're, we're uh, going to talk about the Good Samaritan. I mean, that's a big, long story, and we got characters and, and uh, a whole line of, you know, this is not anything like, these are, these are really just comparisons, uh, uh, word pictures, metaphors to help us understand the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. So Matthew chapter 13, we'll read verses 31 to 33, and then we'll jump down to 44 through 46. He, meeting Jesus, told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. And then verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. A mustard seed, yeast, buried treasure, a priceless pearl. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. 
Before we get into each one of those metaphors and, and, uh, and, and kind of dig into what, the, what that means, uh, I, I want us to tackle that term, the kingdom of heaven, because it's, it's a little bit weird in our vernacular today. We don't necessarily talk much about kingdoms these days. Maybe you're, you are obsessed with the royals in England, the United Kingdom, right? That's about as close as we get other than reading, uh, you know, uh, storybooks to our kids. Maybe uh, it, it, we, we don't necessarily talk about uh, kingdoms. Usually you're probably, your mind probably goes to castles and knights and jousting and fair maidens and and uh, uh, you know there's so many fairy tales and movies and tv shows set in the time of kings and queens and kingdoms there's usually dragons and quests and danger and and all of the things uh, kingdoms fight each other for control and and those those kingdoms are in specific physical locations with boundary lines and they're fighting over the the the, the country or the kingdom uh, you can point to those on a map but God's kingdom, what Jesus calls here the kingdom of heaven uh, in, in Matthew 13, is not a kingdom based on location, but on leadership. God's kingdom doesn't have geographical boundary lines, but is determined by who we are acknowledging as our king. I think if you really boil it down, there's really, in, 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 in thinking of it that way, there, there's really just two kingdoms. There's my kingdom and there's God's kingdom. My kingdom, each one of us saying my kingdom, my personal, everything revolves around me. All of that looks different for each one of us, but, but ultimately uh, uh, in my kingdom, everything's governed by me. It's what I want. It's what I like. It's what I think. It's how I feel. I'm in charge. I'm the king or queen as the case might be. But in God's kingdom... He's the king, right? He's in charge. He guides and directs. His principles rule everything. My kingdom tends to be pretty small because it all just revolves around me. But God's kingdom is everywhere. If God is my king, I can travel across the country or around the world and still be in God's kingdom. It's not about a place, but a person. It's not about location, but leadership. And that's really part of the point of those, those first two parables that we read. In, in the first one, Jesus calls attention to a mustard seed. Mustard seeds are tiny. There's, uh, there's one uh, up there uh, in between. Maybe you can't even see it, but it's right in between uh, the guy's fingers there. They're technically not quite the smallest seed in the whole world, but they would definitely have been the smallest seed that the crowd gathered around Jesus that day would have, would have known about. The smallest seed in their uh, knowledge, in their uh, corner of the world. Uh, and Jesus used this mustard seed to illustrate primarily that in order, uh, it, it, so that he would contrast it with the size of the tree that the mustard seed produces. There's a picture of a mustard tree. The, the seed is tiny, but it grows into a large tree. Sometimes it's 20 feet tall and just as wide as it is tall. And, uh, and it's so big that birds can land in its branches. And so it's quite a contrast to think about that tiny little seed can grow into that huge tree. And that same contrast is emphasized in the second parable where Jesus refers to yeast. There's a, a little bit of yeast. I don't understand the science of how it works, but, but yeast is, is that small powdery substance that you see there behind me that affects a whole batch of dough, causing it to rise, 
chemical reactions, bubbling, all the things, right? I've, I've seen enough episodes of British Bake Off to see how just a little yeast and the right amount of time in the proving drawer, proving drawer, will, uh, that was awful, that was an awful uh, uh, imitation, but uh, if, if you get the right amount of yeast and you get the thing in the proving drawer for the right amount of time, you might just get a handshake from Paul Hollywood, right? Uh, if you haven't seen British Bake Off, then you don't know what I'm talking about. Yeast has a great effect on the bread-making process. In this parable, Jesus says that, that this woman had 60 pounds of flour. Now, 60 pounds of anything is a lot. 60 pounds of, of flour can make a whole lot of bread. Uh, uh, some estimates would be like 6 to, to as many as 12 loaves of bread. And we're, so we've got we, uh, a dozen loaves of bread. Sorry, 6 to 12 dozen loaves of bread. And, uh, and the yeast worked itself through the whole, the whole kitten caboodle, right? Uh, uh, that whole big pile of, of dough, a little bit of yeast worked all the way through it, worked its magic, made that bread come out. Right. It's all about that contrast. What seems small and insignificant can have a huge impact. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. These first two stories, I think, have one major point. The kingdom of heaven has incredible potential. The kingdom of heaven has incredible potential. It may seem like this world is falling apart. It may seem like evil is having its way. It may seem like the followers of Jesus are small in number with little influence. But the kingdom of heaven has incredible potential. God seems to work this way, right? Small things with big potential have a huge influence. In ancient times, God called Abraham, an obscure man with maybe a questionable character, and, and, and called him to follow him to become the father of a great nation. Abraham was all but dead when, when, uh, when he had a son, Isaac. Not a nation, just a son. By the time Abraham died, he did not have a nation. But God had, had promised that, maybe, that, that this would indeed happen. And Abraham was just crazy enough to, to believe him. Things seem, seemed pretty small and insignificant. Uh, Abraham had a son, Isaac. Then Isaac had two sons, twins, Jacob and Esau. Jacob was, was shifty, but, but God called him. And after a lot of wrestling, Jacob followed God. But he was still just one Palestinian farmer with, without a whole lot of influence in the world. Jacob had 12 sons. Uh, one of which was Joseph, and Joseph was, uh, was the youngest uh, and, uh, and, until his, his uh, one more brother came along later. But, but uh, Joseph's older brothers did not like him very much, and they turned on him. And, and we don't have time to get into all the details, but after many mishaps, Joseph found himself in jail in Egypt and things didn't look good for him. Uh, they, things, I mean, talk about insignificant. But scripture says that even in jail, God was with Joseph. And through a dramatic turn of events, Joseph came to power in Egypt, saved countless lives during a famine, and under his leadership and influence caused his family to grow. Jacob's sons, Joseph's brothers, became the tribes of Israel. What started out small and insignificant had turned into a nation, the nation of Israel, the nation that God had promised, the people of God. Down through history... We can trace God's hand at work in the lives of his people until he sent a baby to an insignificant couple from a backwater town called Nazareth. 
The baby was, was born in a barn, his birth witnessed by farm animals and shepherds. Seemingly small and insignificant. And yet there was big potential. Jesus grew, uh, served his father, God, until he, uh, his ministry ended in betrayal and death on a cross. It did indeed seem like his small life was not going to affect much of anything until the third day when Jesus rose from the grave, bringing the potential for life and growth to everyone. God specializes in using what seems to be small and insignificant to do big things. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. God wants to bring his kingdom full of potential to your soul. He can do his work in you. Maybe you think you're too small and insignificant, or maybe that you've messed up too much for God to do anything in your life, but that's wrong. Just like yeast working itself through a huge batch of dough, just like a mustard seed that grows into a huge tree, God can bring his love and life into your heart and soul and do big things. He can transform your life. That happens when you make him the king. The leader of your life. When you're living in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, not just the kingdom of me. What may seem small has the potential to change everything. And that's not only true in, in your heart and soul, but he can also work through you in this world. You may think that you don't have much influence to change things. But with God as your king, there is all of the power and potential imaginable. In fact, there's even more than that. Ephesians chapter 3 says that God is, quote, able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. As unimaginable as it might seem that a tree can emerge from a tiny little seed, as unimaginable as it might seem that a little powder can transform a whole pile of dough, God can do more than you can imagine in and through your life. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. It has incredible potential. And that brings us to the next set of parables that we read. Because the kingdom of heaven has incredible potential, the kingdom of heaven also is immeasurably valuable. About 10 years ago, a California couple was out walking their dog on their, their property in the, uh, in the Sierra Nevadas. And they saw a, uh, a, a lid of a, of a rusty can sticking up out of the ground. And they thought it was trash that somehow had worked itself to the surface. And so they dug it out. About the size of a, of a paint can. But after uh, cracking open the, the, the lid to, uh, to check... They, uh, they found not, they, it, was, it was heavier than what they thought it would be, and so they knew there was something inside it, and maybe it was lead paint or, you know, whatever. So somebody tossed something. They found some, some old gold coins in this, in this thing. As you would do if you found a can with old gold coins, they got a shovel. Because if there's one can with old gold coins, maybe there's another. <laughs> 
And sure enough, there was. And after getting the shovel and getting the uh, the metal detector, they ended up with seven more, total of eight cans, uh, all within the vicinity of the first. And it, they were all filled with old gold coins. It uh, it, it totaled uh, 1,427 coins dating from 1847 to 1894. The face value, so they're coins, uh, $20, $10, $5 coins, uh, the face value, $27,980. But, obviously, they're old gold coins. They're going to be worth more than that. Authenticators were hired to inspect and estimate uh, the, what, their, what their value was, and they estimated that it was probably around $10 million buried in rusty cans on a hillside. Records aren't uh, available. Things are a little sketchy, but it appears that the couple sold most of those coins uh, for even more than the $10 million, and they kept a few uh, just to, uh, you know, just for their historical and, and sentimental significance. Uh, the, the, that find of all those gold coins has been called the Saddle Ridge Hoard. Uh, Saddle Ridge is what they called their, their ranch or their property there. And so the Saddle Ridge hoard, and it's the biggest treasure of its kind found on American soil. Kind of makes you want to get a metal detector and go have a little fun this afternoon, right? Well, they, they were in like gold country and stuff. I don't know whether you find much around here, but you're welcome to do it. This next story here, it, it, it's a quick one. Just one verse long, it's all about the discovery of an even more valuable treasure than the Saddle Ridge Hoard. Since there were, were no safe deposit boxes or, or even really banks back then, right? It was more common people, if they had valuables, they would sock them away. A lot of times they would bury them and for safekeeping. But then they, you know, wouldn't tell very many people, if anyone, about where they buried these things. And then, uh, you know, if they hadn't told anyone and they uh, met their demise at some point, then there were these buried uh, valuables around. It wasn't, it wasn't common, but it certainly wasn't unheard of that someone might happen upon a buried treasure of sorts. In this instance, Jesus describes the treasure having such great value that it was worth more than everything that this man had that that had discovered it. And so he sold everything and he bought the field that contained the treasure. The next story is about a pearl. Uh, described as having great value. Maybe your your, uh, translation says a pearl of great price. We value pearls today, not like they did back then, though. Back then, they were, they were uh, the most valuable gem in the world. Not only were they valued for their beauty, but also because of how rare they were and how difficult they were to obtain. Fine quality pearls uh, are found in a pearl oyster, which lives at an average ocean depth of about 40 feet. So a pearl wasn't a treasure that you just stumbled across as you walked across the beach, right? So pearl hunting uh, wasn't exactly as easy as maybe it is. I'm not saying it's easy today, but it certainly uh, involved, uh, they didn't have all the equipment then, right? Uh, From what I've read, it seems that first century pearl hunting uh, equipment consisted of two things, a rope and a rock. This is how they went hunting for, uh, for pearls. They went out in a little boat, they tied a rock to themselves to take them down the 40 feet to the pearl uh, pearl bed, the oyster bed below. They would hold their breath as long as they possibly could. They would hope there weren't any sharks or moray eels around. And uh, they would dig through and uh, find oysters. And then they'd come up and they'd open them up. And they said about one in a thousand would have a pearl. 
pretty rare to get a pearl. The, the Jewish Talmud even says that pearls are beyond price. And that's why the merchant in Jesus' story sold everything that he had when he found this priceless pearl. It was a, a hidden treasure, a priceless pearl. This, these stories Jesus linked together. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is immeasurably valuable. We value a lot of things today, right? I, I, I don't know what you value um, a lot of times we think immediately about money and possessions when we think about our, uh, what we value. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe you've invested in a 401k or an IRA and you're, you're, uh, uh, you have a, a savings account or other investments or, or uh, maybe you've invested in, in uh, other things that have value and worth. Maybe you've bought old gold coins in order to, uh, uh, to, 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 to uh, have a nest egg of sorts. Uh, Although the stock market is so volatile over time, they say that reti- money in retirement investments are, have averaged over time 5 to 8% uh, return. Uh, and so uh, we, we sock our money away and, and we, we, we value having this. The, but I think we value, it's not really the money that we value, right? It's the things that that money provides. Things like peace and stability and rest and comfort and security. Of course, we value a whole lot of other things that aren't necessarily uh, money. Uh, we value our relationships. We value uh, the, uh, the, the things that bring us joy. We, we, we could go on and on. What, I don't know what you value. But I, I, think, I think we can tell pretty easily how much we value something by looking at what we are willing to give up for it. Value can be measured by willingness to sacrifice for it. What are you willing to pay? That determines how much value it has, right? I like to go to garage sales and estate sales. I like the ones where they have the prices already on them. Uh, that way I can tell, I can compare in my head as I'm walking around whether they value the same things I value, right? Because uh, sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll take something and say, well, uh, what, do you, what do you want for this? And they'll say, well, what would you give for it? And usually, I'm willing to give a whole lot less than what they are willing to take, right? And so they value it a little differently than I do. I, I think I'm learning in this. My father-in-law is, uh, is uh, professional at this, I think. I've witnessed firsthand how he uh, is, is at a sale, I think it was at a flea market, pointed to a pile that I had already determined was junk and I moved on. But he's pointing to something in this, this pile of junk And he said to the guy, how much do you want for that 25 cent knife? Kind of already uh, showing his hand what he was willing to give for it, right? Well, he he flicked a quarter to the guy. The guy took it and he took that knife. Of course, he took it home, sanded it down, got all the rust off of it, sharpened it up, replaced the broken handle with part of a deer antler as he does all the time and uh, turned it into a work of art and sold it for 25 bucks. Right. His 25 cents turned into 25. He saw the value in it. Do you see the value in the kingdom of heaven? Are you willing to sacrifice for it? 
Are you willing to give up everything in order to live for the kingdom of God? That may sound extreme, but but the kingdom of God is worth it because it has extreme value. I, I, I'm sure uh, the people who, uh, who who might have witnessed this man selling everything in order to uh, to buy a field thought he was crazy, and I'm sure the the, the people who saw uh, uh, this pearl merchant selling his whole collection thought he was nuts. But that's just because they couldn't see the value of what these guys were investing in. If something is priceless, giving up what I've got for it is totally worth it. Do you see the value in the kingdom of God? Have you given up everything for him? He's totally worth it. Uh, brings blessing and peace and forgiveness, a relationship with the Spirit here and now and the promise of eternity face to face with Jesus. How much is that worth to you? Have you given up everything to follow Jesus? Jesus isn't asking you to do something that he wasn't already willing to do himself. Jesus found us dirty and rotten, buried in our sin, cast aside and forgotten. But instead of treating us as our sins deserved, he, I guess you could say, sold all that he had. He he stepped out of heaven, giving up everything, ultimately giving up his life so that you and I could be forgiven. Philippians 2, there's there's an old hymn quoted and it it describes this very well. Philippians 2, verse 6, Jesus being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus sacrificed everything so that you and I could be forgiven. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's like a mustard seed, yeast, buried treasure, a priceless pearl. Living in God's kingdom has incredible potential and is immeasurably valuable. So we have to ask ourselves after seeing these rapid fire parables today, am I living in that kingdom? (laughs) Am I living for Jesus? Uh, is, Is Jesus my king? Have I recognized the potential of the kingdom of heaven? And have I given up everything to follow him? Nothing is worth as much in my life as uh, as following Jesus. He, He calls us to give up everything, but only because following him is worth so much.